Welcome everybody uh, and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina. I'm a communications officer at Austroads uh, and I will be moderating today's session. As you know, uh, we have updated part six of the guide to road design and today's session, along with the second webinar on the 6th of October, will give you a detailed overview of the changes and how this information can be applied in your work. Uh, we have more than a thousand people registered for today's session and more than 700 for the second webinar. We appreciate great interest uh, in this topic from the professional community uh, and to make the most of these two sessions, we are running them in a different format. There will be a survey at the end of the session, so please fill it in to let us know whether this new format worked for you or didn't. We will have a few little pauses for you to send your questions through and in between you can just focus on the video. We understand it can get a bit distracting, so please don't feel pressured to read those questions and answers while you're watching the video. There will be some quiet time at the end of the webinar for you to do that, and we will also email you all of the questions and answers after the webinar. When you send us your questions, please note a slide number that your question relates to to help us answer your question as best as we can handout section of your sidebar. If you have any technical problems, uh, just let us know through the questions section. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, that's most likely an issue with your connection. Leaving the webinar, closing your browser and rejoining the session via your registration link usually fixes that problem. So before we dive into the content of the presentation, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to eldest past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Here's our structure. We use a program management approach to deliver our work. There are four programs, and each is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we are focusing on today was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by David Botherman. So today we will be focusing on a practical application of a new method included in the Guide to Road Design Part 6. The new method determines the risk associated with roadside crashes and where risk mitigation treatments are required. Our presenters for today are Peter Ellis and Dr. Rod Troutbeck. We will first hear from Peter Ellis. Peter is currently the Director of Road Design Transport for New South Wales. He has over 40 years experience in all aspects of road design, ranging from major rural and urban motorway design to minor road intersection and drainage designs. Peter has represented Austroads as a corresponding member on the permanent International Association of Road Congresses task force called Road Design and Infrastructure for Innovative Transport Solutions. And he has been actively representing roads and maritime services now integrated with Transport for New South Wales on the Austroads task force since 2001. Our second presenter is Dr. Rod Troutbeck. Rod is a principal of Troutbeck and Associates. He has been a researcher at the Australian Road Research Board and a professor of civil engineering at Queensland University of Technology before consulting. Rod has multiple industry awards and has published a number of publications on road safety dating from the early 1980s. Uh, welcome to you both and I will hand over to Peter. 
Thank you, Ekaterina. Um, and welcome everyone to the first of two webinars on the update of part six of the Guide to Road Design, which is Roadside Design, Safety and Barriers. The revision of this part was bigger than just the Road Design Task Force. And so we look for some direction from a wider group. The reference group that you can see here was made up from members of the Road Design Task Force, the Osroad Safety Barrier Assessment Panel, known as ASBAP, and the Road and Roadside Themes Group, which sits under the Road Safety Task Force. Road jurisdictions across Australia and New Zealand were represented, together with local government and the consulting industry. The technical working group consisted of myself as a project manager, Dr. Rod Troutbeck, who you will meet shortly as a technical lead. Other members of the working group included David Bobman, who is the Road Safety and Design Program Manager for Austroads, and Richard Fanning, our Victorian jurisdictional representative. As you would imagine, there were a number of iterations of the new version of part six, including ongoing reviews by the working group, reviews by the entire Road Design Task Force, members of the original reference group, and the Traffic Management Working Group, before eventually ending up with the Austroads Board for approval to publish earlier this year. The last edition of Part 6 was published in 2009. It was then Austroads policy to review parts of the Guide to Road Design every five years. So a complete review of Part 6 was commenced in 2015. The Road Design Task Force realised in 2018 that the final draft was received that the new version did not reflect more recent developments, particularly in areas of safe systems and a rollover crash investigation undertaken by the task force. There was also the ongoing misuse and misunderstanding of the clear zone concept and that overseas understanding of roadside crash mitigation was changing. The new guide needed to address these issues along with the dot points you can see here. It should also recognise the need to consider both continuous treatments and targeted locations. It needed to support the needs of all levels of government and be based on sound risk management principles. It is important to note that the review was only undertaken on the first three sections of part six. I will expand a little on this at the end of the webinar. The slide shows the relationship of part six within the new version of the guide to road design. You will notice here that part one sets the scene for road design. And the new part two will focus on network-wide design outcomes in contrast to individual project outcomes. Also a new part seven, new and emerging treatments, which is well underway. I would now like to hand over to Rod Troutbeck, who will lead us through the main part of the webinar. Thanks, Peter. Good afternoon. In the next part of this webinar, we'll discuss broad aspects of roadside safety design. Before we start, I will define some terms for you. Part six notes that roadside designers should consider the safety of all road users and produce road environments to promote safe travel. They should design for risk reduction and they should also choose appropriate barriers and other treatments for the potential impacts of the site. The road geometry and environment must help drivers to keep their vehicles on the road. Self-explaining roads with appropriate signing, line marking, seal shoulders assist drivers in this regard. In this webinar, we are focused on risk reduction by preventing incidents and limiting the potential for serious injuries and fatalities through improved road design. An important part of the new process is how we quantify risk. The risk assessment process in part six complements other assessment tools such as ANRAM. A risk-based procedure is central to part six. 
The new procedure enables us to identify where roadsides should be treated to reduce risk. We often categorise risk using a two-dimensional matrix shown in this slide. It classifies a probability of an event occurring and the consequences of that event. In this part, we have extended the concepts to include exposure, likelihood and severity, which mirrors the concepts in the Austroad Safe System Risk Assessment Framework document. However, the approach in part six uses quantitative risk values rather than the qualitative indices in the framework. Exposure is a measure of the frequency of vehicles leaving the traffic lane and encroaching onto the shoulder. Exposure is dependent on the carriageway traffic volume, the number of lanes, the traffic width, the terrain type, grade and curve radii. Likelihood is the proportion of vehicles that have left the road and then collide with a hazard. Likelihood is dependent on the vehicle speed and the lateral distance to the hazard. The further the hazard is from the road, the lower the likelihood, but it never reaches zero. Severity is a measure of the likely outcomes from a collision and depends on the hazard type and dimensions. A risk-based procedure allows us to be more consistent in our application of safety devices and to use funds more effectively. In part six, risk scores are used to quantify the risk. A risk score is a product of the exposure, measuring encroachments per kilometre per year, the likelihood, shown as a percentage in the figures in the guide, and the severity of an impact expressed as a trauma index. It is not important to dwell on this now, as we are concentrating on how to use risk scores. For further information, read Appendix B of the guide. The risk scores defined above represent the collective or total risk to the broader community from run-off-the-road crashes. Just a reminder, send your questions for the Q&A. To help us answer your questions, please let us know the slide number your question relates to. Please don't be pressured to read the answers to the questions while you're trying to watch the video. We will send you a copy of the responses after the webinar. Later in this presentation, I'll be referring to significant hazards. Here is a list of significant hazards that are likely to have an approximately the same trauma outcome when a vehicle collides with them as would occur when colliding with a tree. These include tree-lined edges and isolated trees with a trunk diameter of 250 millimetres or greater, utility poles, but excluding slip-based poles and energy-absorbing poles, fixed-based lighting columns, and traffic signal poles, rocks protruding more than 300 millimetres above the ground surface, ruts in the ground surface more than 300 millimetres deep, and rock cuttings. The list continues and, and includes some significant steeper hill batters, vertical drops, water courses, and significant drainage structures with headwalls. The protests centres around the presence of these significant roadside hazards. Other roadside hazards have been classified as less, less significant and minor, and the process is adjusted if they are present. A little more background information. The lateral distance to a hazard depends on the presence and slope of an embankment. The lateral distance includes embankments flatter than six horizontal to one vertical, or six to one. Even embankments deeper than six to one, but flatter than four to one, then its width is excluded from the lateral distance measure. Embankments deeper than four to one are considered a rollover hazard for some vehicles, and the lateral distance extends from the traffic lane to the embankment hinge point. You'll need to be aware of these basic concepts as we'll use them throughout the webinar. 
In this section, we will discuss the network risk assessment process. The process evaluates the risk to occupants of vehicles that leave the road. The process is difficult and different to other techniques used around the world, although they are all, including this process, based on similar concepts. Risk is assessed at the network level and the program or project risk level. This is illustrated here and in figure 1.2 in the guide. This slide concentrates on the network risk assessment and we will discuss the program or project risk assessment later. The network is assessed before the program risk is assessed and the network risk assessment informs the risk mitigation requirements at the program and project level. The network practices and jurisdictional policies are listed here in the network risk assessment procedure. They are applied across the network and used in the program and project assessments, which we will discuss later. National practices for the installation of safety barriers are applied to all greenfield road segments, regardless of the dimensions of the road's cross section. For instance, the guide indicates that barriers should be installed on verges and medians of freeways and divided carriageways with a speed limit of 100 kilometres per hour or higher and with access control. Jurisdictional policies. Road agencies may develop policies about the installation of barriers and other treatments for their road network. It is expected that these policies will be justified through a risk assessment. Policies may include the installation of barriers to shield and protect high consequence infrastructure that cannot feasibly be removed or relocated and as high community costs have impacted. An example is the use of barriers to shield rail infrastructure. The installation of barriers to shield and protect high consequence land located outside of a road corridor is another example. For instance, some schoolyards, childcare centres and fuel storage facilities are examples. Policies may also include the installation of continuous barriers, wide centre line treatments with or without a barrier on defined road types and locations. If a road section needs the requirements of the national practices, jurisdictional policies or corridor safety visions, then it's not necessary to review the roadside risk at the program level. We will discuss this later. A primary element in the network risk assessment is the network safety plan, incorporating corridor safety visions. These are broad, clear statements to create the safest road network within the available resources. The corridor safety vision is a high level document that is not static and should be monitored and updated as necessary. These allow for a consistent network level of safety across roads and roadsides. A corridor safety vision may also document safety treatments for a particular corridor. For instance, a road that may need to be treated in isolation because of an adverse crash history. What are typical roadside cross sections? Typical roadside cross sections are a means to translate the safety visions into engineering design parameters. Typical roadside cross sections should reflect user and community requirements and the available resources. These typical cross sections wouldn't be expected to apply over a number of road segments. We use these cross sections to quantify and the targeted level of risk that is the network roadside risk intervention threshold or NWRIT. I know this is a mouthful, but as a network parameter, it is dealing with risk of a roadside and aims to provide in an intervention threshold. The network risk assessment process reviews the risk of roadside crashes across a network for different road types. 
over a large area. There's no prescriptive statements of what roads should be included or excluded in the network. In essence, any road that has a higher risk level than the NRRIT should be treated. Those with a lesser risk can remain untreated at this time. The network road risk intervention threshold, I told you it was a mouthful, is informed by the risk of a run off the road crashes associated with the typical road sites. The risk is evaluated using risk scores, which we'll discuss in a moment. The guide gives three potential methods to determine the NRRIT. These are the network aspirational level method, the jurisdictional constrained method, and the historic treatment level method. The network aspirational level method starts by defining the desired roadside cross sections, which have a low risk level. A desired cross section could be a roadside with continuous flexible barriers along each verge and perhaps down the centre of the road. The risk score associated with the desired cross section would serve as the NRRIT, which would be small and aspirational. It is recognised that road agencies using this method will make significant road safety gains at individual road segments. The road agency would then resolve the commitments and constraints needed to achieve this level across the network. The jurisdictional constraint method. This method relies on listing road segments and their characteristics, including the lengths of roads in kilometre with different traffic volume ranges, the onset of significant hazards and the road environment. The intention is that the road segments have a reasonable length and that the road's attributes are a summary of the road. If parts of the road segment have different roadside characteristics, then two or more entries may be used with their roadside lengths proportioned accordingly. Similarly, there is no reason for a roadside on each side of the road to have the same risk score, and there may be one entry for each side of the road. It is important not to be too detailed as the process doesn't warrant it. The road characteristics are a broad description of a typical roadside in that segment. These characteristics are used to evaluate a risk score, as we'll show you shortly. Initial NRRIT is chosen, and the cost to reduce the risk to be below the threshold is evaluated using unit rates for typical treatments. A number of iterations may be used to raise or lower the chosen NRRIT until the jurisdictional resources match the proposed safety program. This is best explained with an example of a rural road network. Fictitious network of two-lane, two-way rural roads consists of four roadside segments labelled A, B, C and D. In practice, all roadside segments of the road network would be assessed. All road segments shown here are in flat terrain. Segments A, B and C have an operating speed of 110 km per hour, while the operating speed in segment D is slower at 90 km per hour. The operating speed is expected to be the 85th percent of speed of traffic on the road. The operating speed that has been considered for rural roads are 70, 90 and 110 km per hour. It is a broad classification parameter. We don't choose values between 70, 90 and 110 km per hour. Other attributes of the road segment are as follows. Segment A is 10 kilometres long, has an AADT of 4,500 vehicles per day, with a significant hazard seven metres from the traffic lanes. Segment B is 15 kilometres long, has an AADT of 3,000 vehicles per day, with significant hazard three metres from the traffic lanes. Segment C is 20 kilometres long, has an AADT of 1,500 vehicles per day, 
were still in hazards five metres from the traffic lanes. And finally, segment D is 40 kilometres long, has an AAT of 500 vehicles per day, with a significant hazard one metre from the traffic lanes. We will fill in the risk scores values shortly. Using the same four roadside segments in our example network, we are going to evaluate the risk with the risk score charts. The risk score charts have an AAT along the horizontal axis and risk score on the vertical axis. The different lines in this example refer to the offset of significant hazards ranging from one to nine metres. All four segments in this example are on roads with an operating speed of 90 and 110 kilometres per hour in flat terrain, so we can use charts four and five as shown here. As segment A has traffic volumes of 4,500 vehicles per day, a line is projected upwards from 4,500 on the horizontal axis to the purple line for a hazard offset of seven metres. This is point A. Drawing a horizontal line to the vertical axis gives a risk score of 1.6. Segment B has an AAT of 3,000 vehicles per day with an operating speed of 110 kilometres per hour. There's an even hazard of three metres from the traffic lane, giving a risk score of 2.8 for both roadsides. Segment C has an AAT of 1,500 vehicles per day, an operating speed of 110 kilometres per hour. This is an even hazard of five metres from the traffic lanes, giving a risk score of 1.4 for both roadsides. Finally, segment D has an AADT of 500 vehicles per day, operating speed of 90 kilometres per hour. This is lower than the operating speed of other segments, so we use chart four. The significant hazard to one metre from the traffic lanes, giving a risk score of 0.6 for both roadsides. This is the first time you may have seen these risk score charts, and you may be wondering why they're not straight lines. Double the traffic, and you might have expected to have double the risk. However, the propensity for each driver to crash actually decreases with AADT. I'll have more to say about these graphs later in this presentation. Using these results, we would tabulate them in a spreadsheet as shown on the slide. These data are plotted on the graph of the cumulative length of roadsides on the vertical axis scale and risk score on the horizontal scale. You will note that I've drawn only part of the graph to illustrate my points. It would be expected that all road segments in the network could be included. Here's roadside segments A, B and C are shown, while segment D is off the scale. The graph is constructed by ordering the data by risk score and then calculating the cumulative lengths of roadsides greater than a particular risk score. For example, the length of road with a risk score greater than 1.6 can be determined by these arrows. If this risk score was the NRRIT, and this would indicate the length of roadside to be treated. The process for the jurisdictional constraint method is to choose an, an RIT value, cost the project with a higher risk score, and compare that cost with available resources. The treatment cost will generally be the installation of safety barriers, but other treatments like audio tactile line marking, paving shoulders, and so on might also be suitable. Decrease the NRRIT value by shifting the vertical arrow to the left and more roadside segments will need to be treated. This is an iterative process and you might have to adjust your NRRIT values until the cost of treatment is equal to the available resources. The process is not meant to cost the treatments down to the last dollar, but it is meant to provide a reasonable means to identify the higher risk road segments 
that should be addressed first and their appropriate treatment costs. To demonstrate this point further, I've listed the row segments in increasing risk score. You can see that as we change the NWIT values by the columns on the right, so the number of segments and the length of the road that needs to be treated changes. Historic treatment level uses historic treatment for previously accepted cross sections. For example, a commonly accepted road site has used a clear nine metre area alongside the road in flat terrain. This is then a typical cross section and its risk score can be calculated. While this is not recommended, it would provide an NWIT in the short term. An NWIT of 2.0 gives roadside designs that are consistent with current level of risk on long lengths of network in reasonably flat terrain, where barriers have not been installed under the 2010 Ostroads Guide. However, the status quo is not what we should be doing. Continuing with traditional procedures or an NRIT that represents current practice does not move us forward towards Vision Zero. We should be aspiring to obtain funding to reduce the risk of roadside crashes. The network roadside risk intervention threshold is not static and it will need to be revised periodically. It is applied to all road segments in a program or project in the network. Just a reminder, send through your questions for the Q&A. To help us answer your question, please let us know your slide number your question relates to. As I mentioned above, you can send in those questions, but don't be worried about reading the answers during the session. The Q&A sheet will be sent to everybody after the webinar. In this section, we will discuss the program or project risk assessment process. The process uses the outcome of the network risk assessment, in particular, the network roadside risk intervention threshold. In this process, which is described in figure 1.2 of the guide, we will go through the steps one at a time. For step one, you need to decide if the road segment is covered by national practices, jurisdictional policies, or a corridor safety vision. For our example, we are assuming that none of these apply. The more usual path uses steps two, three, and four. For a project risk assessment, the network roadside risk intervention threshold would have been documented before the roadside in a program or project is reviewed. The task of step two is to identify the risk associated with a road segment using the same risk score method that was applied to evaluate the NWRIT. Using the same method assures that we are looking at the relative risk between the NWRIT, that's for the network, and the site. A few more points about the process. The kinetic energy of a run-off-the-road vehicle is related to the road's operating speed. Accordingly, the process uses operating speed rather than design speed. The operating speed is the 85th percentile speed for rural areas and is approximately 10 kilometres per hour above the speed limit. Terrain type is used to quantify the exposure, the expected number of run-off-the-road vehicles per kilometre per year, the terrain types used in the US research are flat, rolling and mountainous, but they were provided without clear definitions. The guide uses the same subjective terrain classification, but it does give some information to define them. Another concept introduced into the risk score charts is the use of background and isolated hazards. The background hazards are continuous and consistent, 
the isolated hazards are generally in front of the background hazards as shown in this diagram. Errant vehicles that, that do not collide with the isolated hazards will collide with the background hazards. The isolated hazards shield the background hazards. The process and the charts consider both hazard types. Isolated hazards are less than 20 metres apart are classified as continuous. Some examples are given in the following slides. The risk score charts provided throughout the text and grouped together in Appendix D of the guide. The notion is that you could use these charts to provide a ready reckoner of the road sites that should be treated. A few points about the charts. Multiple charts are presented in a single figure. The chart number is shown on the top left corner of each chart. The traffic volumes are presented along the horizontal axis and repeated for each chart. I presume you will appreciate that the 5,000 mark between the two charts refers to the first chart and that this point is also zero for the second chart. The lines on the chart are in the order of the legend. As a hazard offset is increased, so the risk score is reduced. The chart's description gives the locality, rural or urban, the terrain and the traffic operating speed. The legend in these charts refers to the offset to the continuous background hazards. In other charts, the frequency of isolated hazards is used. Tables in the guide list the characteristics of hazards in each chart. This slide lists the risk score charts in the guide for single carriageway rural roads. The table is divided into two parts. The first part is for roadsides with significant background hazards, but no isolated hazards. The second part has the background hazards at the present offset, three or four metres, and with significant isolated hazards, two metres in front of the background hazards at various spacings. The guide provides similar charts for divided and undivided urban roads. Divided rural roads would be expected to have an operating speed of 110 kilometres per hour or greater and would be largely covered by national practices. The designer is expected to select the most appropriate chart to reflect the roadside characteristics. If the conditions don't align exactly, choose a chart that best represents your roadside. If you don't think that reflects your situation well enough, then you can use a process in Appendix B. Both methods described in Appendix B and the graphical method are based on the same assumptions and give the same results. However, if you use Appendix B, be aware of the precision of the process. The precision of the process is the same as what you will get from the slides. As an example, consider a road with two segments with different cross-section profiles. In the first segment, shown in this slide, there appears to be two lines of trees. One line could be continuous and the background, one line could be considered to be the background hazards and the other isolated hazards. But since the trees in the foreground are reasonably close together, it would be easy to consider all trees to be a continuous background hazard and with no isolated hazard. It is your choice as to how you define the hazard type. You will need to select the most appropriate chart in Appendix D. You determine the risk score by drawing a vertical line at the appropriate traffic volumes, and when it crosses the appropriate offset line, draw a horizontal line to get the risk score, as we did before. As an example, assume an operating speed of 110 kilometres per hour on this slide, on this single carriageway rural road, with an AADT of 4,000 vehicles per day. We'll also assume the hazards offset four metres from the traffic lane, 
you would have noticed that I have interpolated between the lines for a four metre offset. The risk score is given by the horizontal line as shown, giving a risk score value of 2.6. Alternatively, you can draw a horizontal line to reflect the network roadside risk intervention threshold. I've chosen an NIIT of 1.5. Any site with a risk score above the NIIT line should be treated. This slide also demonstrates that the risk is reduced with a lower vehicle operating speed. For the second road segment, the road has an embankment that can be considered to be a background hazard and the trees on the top of the back of the embankment are isolated hazards. It is assumed that this road segment is on the same road and has the same traffic volume. This road segment has both background hazards and isolated hazards. Accordingly, charts nine and 10 should be used. These charts assume that the background hazards are four metres from the traffic lane and the isolated hazards are two metres in front of them. The horizontal axis is AADT and the vertical axis is risk score. The different lines refer to the average spacing of the isolated hazards. Apart from the blue line for the isolated hazards spaced at 20 metres, the other lines are relatively close together. This may concern some designers, but they do show relativity. For this example road, the AAT is 4,000 vehicles today, and the isolated has a space at 100 metres intervals. Then the risk score would be 2.7 and slightly greater than the 2.6 shown for the previous slides. This is due to the additional isolated hazards. Again, the NIIT value can be inserted on these charts to identify conditions for treatment, as shown by the shaded section. You might be wondering why graphical techniques were used in the guide. We wanted to make the process as transparent as possible. The charts show the effect of major variables like traffic volumes and hazard offset. The charts also show the relative risk between different scenarios like reducing operating speed. Secondly, the charts do not imply a whole level, high level of precision. While the process is based on the best national and international information at the time, it still does not have a high level of precision. There's still only limited data to support many parameters. This has been the case for the approaches in earlier versions of part six, but over time we have forgotten that many of the numbers were not well founded. More on this in the second webinar. Finally, the process of drawing a line on the charts at the NIIT value to show conditions for sites to be treated is simple and especially used for smaller shires and municipalities. For step three, you need to identify, evaluate and rank the mitigation options using the risk score procedure. You may be able to remove the hazard from the roadside, you may be able to make the hazard more frangible, or you may be able to change the cross-section or alignment of the road. However, probably the best solutions are to use audio tactile line marking, pave shoulders, install and safety barriers, or reduce the operating speed, or some combination of the whole. Elements of Step four are described in sections four, five, and six of the guide. I'll leave you to read these sections. This slide shows the risk score for impacts into stiffer safety barriers. The vertical scale is the risk score and the horizontal scale is AADT. In these charts, the barrier is continuous and offset one metre from roads with a 70 kilometre per hour operating speed and offset two metres on other roads. If the barrier is offset further from the road, then the risk score would be reduced. You may have noticed the risk scores are small.
To illustrate the relative risk score for barriers, I will use risk score charts four and five. The risk score for continuous barriers on these roads is shown by these lines. These lines are conservative and they're based on stiffer barriers with an assumed offset of two metres. You can see that the risk associated with a barrier is very low in comparison to other roadsides. Consequently, a barrier is generally provides a safer roadside. At this point, I've explained the basics of road assess risk assessment process. In the remaining time, we would like to discuss issues with impacts with culvert headwalls. They are significant isolated hazards and the analysis will highlight some further concepts. I'll give you a moment to send in your questions. In this example, the two-lane road had 3.3 metre lanes, an operating speed of 90 kilometres per hour, a design AADT of 2,000 vehicles per day. There is a four-on-one embankment that extends past the hinge point, which is 2.4 metres from the traffic lanes. There is a continuous line of trees at the toe of the embankment that form the background hazard. The trees are classified as significant hazards. The road is in rolling terrain. I describe the terrain as being hilly, with the road geometry having frequent curves and relatively short straight sections. The top view is a cross section as described in the previous slide. However, as the embankment slope is four to one, it is classified as not being recoverable. Vehicles that, that travel down the, over the hinge point will continue to the bottom of the embankment. The method of measuring the lateral distance to these trees excludes the width of this embankment and the lateral distance to the background hazard, it's the trees, is 2.4 metres. This is actually the same cross-section that is equivalent to the one where the trees are forming the background hazards are positioned at the hinge point because vehicles will road drive down the embankment. This is shown in the lower image. Using these road characteristics, chart two gives a risk score of 3.1. You'll note that I've interpolated between the lines on the chart. The difference in the risk scores will not be large from this interpolation and should not affect the outcome significantly. Further to our example, the roadside is on the outside of a horizontal curve with a radius of 700 metres. The road segment has a 6% downgrade. This particular curve and inclined road section is shorter than one kilometre, as depicted in the left-hand drawing. Remember, exposure has units of encroachment per kilometre per year, and the risk score is then represents the risk per kilometres per year. So that we can compare the risk scores across sites, we need to assume that the road segment is extended to be one kilometre long. The appropriate risk score is then used to evaluate a risk, a base risk score, which can then be modified with grade and curvature factors. This is in table 1.3 in the guide. It gives the curve radii factors for tighter horizontal curves. They depend on the curve radii, where the hazards on the inside or outside of the curve, the lateral distance to the hazard, and the road's operating speed. As this hazard on the curve, and with the lateral distance from the traffic lanes of 2.4 metres, the highlighted squares best fits these conditions. In some instances, the factor will change depending if the hazards are on the inside or outside of the curve. There's no need to interpolate between these numbers in the table, which is table 1.3 in the guide. You'd simply use a cell that best represents your conditions. 
As we have a 6% downgrade, we use table 1.4 in the guide. We used a curve factor from the previous slide and increased the risk score for the shortest section by multiplying the base risk score, that's 3.1, by the curve factor, 1.1, and the grade factor in this table, that is 2. The risk score for the shortest section is then 6.8. This assumes that the characteristics extend over one kilometre. Now adding a culvert and a head wall to the embankment, the culvert headfall is 6.4 metres from the traffic land, is 3 metres long, is in the, and in the direction of traffic. It's also on the outside of a horizontal curve in our short section of rural road. Remember that the horizontal curve radius is 700 metres and the downgrade is 6%. As I said before, the trees at the toe of the embankment would have the same safety outcome at the hinge point, and it really doesn't matter to the trauma outcome if the vehicle impacts the trees or the culvert headwall the outcome will be similar. Both hazard types are classified as being significant hazards. And so the risk score for the roadside would be the same 6.8 as we discussed above. Now, if the trees were removed from the embankment and beyond, then we need to change the concepts a little. Traditionally, we would have the background hazards and isolated hazards in front of them. Vehicles colliding with the isolated hazards are not expected to collide with the background hazards with the same severity. The isolated hazards shield the background hazards to a degree. This does not have to be the case. A continuous hazard like the embankment can be in front of isolated hazards as shown here. The culvert headwall becomes the isolated hazard and the continuous four to one embankment becomes a background hazard. However, the background hazard does not shield the isolated hazard, the culvert headwall, and neither does the headwall shield the embankment. We analyse this problem by assessing the risk score for the background hazard, the embankment, and the risk score for the isolated hazard, the headwall, and adding them together. This is a plot of the risk on the vertical axis and distance along the road along the horizontal axis. A segment road contains both the short segment with a horizontal curve and a culvert headwall and other segments that are flat and straight. The roadside on the curved and inclined segment presents a greater risk. The culvert headwall presents an even greater risk. We spoke about assessing the short segments if it was one kilometre long, but we can't apply exactly the same approach to the culvert headwall because its length is too short and because it's the only hazardous type in the one kilometre section. If the NIIT was at this level, then you would treat the whole road. And if it's at this level, then you would treat roadsides on the curved and inclined sections. Finally, with the NIIT at this level, you may only need to treat the culvert headwall. For an isolated hazard like a culvert headwall, we evaluate over a 100 metre length of roadside. This provides a reasonable representation of additional risk from the headwall. The risk score for this 100 metre section uses a similar concept to the one described earlier. An artificial road is evaluated which has 10 identical sections, each with an isolated hazard, in this case the culvert headwall. The graphs presented earlier could be used to predict the risk score on this basis. The same approach of using 10 identical road sections is used to evaluate the treatment, which may be the installation of some safety barrier to shield the hazard. Through this process, the average risk becomes the risk score. 
A set of risk score charts are included in the guide to enable you to predict the additional risk of a three meter culvert with different offsets from the road. For this example, the risk score for a culvert headwall is 0.24, and this would be added to the risk score of the embankment. And one last reminder to send through your questions. And finally, all roadsides present a risk to air and fit drivers. Our task is to minimise and mitigate these risks to the greatest extent we can with limited funding. Thank you very much for that, Rod. And thanks to everyone for your insightful questions. This was the first of two webinars on the revision of part six of the Guide to Road Design. The second webinar will look more closely at the background evidence supporting the network roadside risk intervention threshold, including the dot points you can see here. The next steps for the Road Design Task Force, which has already commenced, is a revision of the next three sections of part six, specifically looking at treatment options and road safety barrier and the road safety barrier design process. This is the end of the presentation. Thank you all for watching and sending us your questions. We will collate all of the questions and answers and email them to you after the webinar. Thanks again for being with us and just a few more things before you exit the webinar. The recording of this session will be published on our website and we will let you know when it is available so you can watch it again or share it with your colleagues. You can also search for Ostroads in your podcast app. We have seven webinars coming up. Whether you are interested in project delivery performance or you are making investment decisions for road assets or looking for the best approach to road freight and communities, there is a variety of topics for you to choose from. On the 6th of October, please join us for the second webinar for this project. We will talk about the procedures background, uh, concepts and research behind it. And thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.